0: their way. I uh, encourage you to make your way uh, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, this is an exciting morning for me. It's my first Sunday in the pulpit in 2023. And uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited to be worshiping our way through the books of First and Second Thessalonians with you in the beginning of this new year and hearing from the Lord what He has to say to us about how to live as Christians until Jesus comes back for us. Uh, These books are written to answer a highly practical set of questions and to teach us both deep truths about the last days as well as to give us some joy-producing commands for living life as a Christian in these last days, whether they are the very last of the last days uh, or not, and so um, so before I get into the text itself, I want to give you a quick summary of the background to this letter here, First Thessalonians. Um, give you just a quick summary here of the Book of Acts. Okay, uh, Paul comes to faith in Jesus in a miraculous way on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter nine. He takes a first missionary journey, goes into uh, what is now modern-day Turkey and plants churches, and then he takes a second trip in which he takes uh, his friend Silas and his friend Timothy with him, and they go off to plant churches. And as they're in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, Paul sees a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is across the Bosporus, uh, uh, Straits into uh, what is now modern-day Greece, and um, one of the major cities there uh, is the city of Philippi. You read, you read about uh, their time in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Uh, but in that, in that city, they uh, lead to Christ a woman named Lydia, and they deliver a young woman who is a slave girl that is being used by her masters to tell fortunes. Do you remember this story? And they deliver her from the demon that possesses her, and the, their, her masters are so upset by this that they stir up a mob to form a riot in the city with Paul and Silas at the center of it. And they are beaten within an inch of their lives and placed in stocks in a prison, from which they are miraculously set, miraculously set free in the night and lead the Philippian jailer and his entire family to faith in Jesus. The next morning, they are set free from the prison uh, by the officials of the city of Philippi, but they are nevertheless forced to leave that city. So what are we going to do? We saw a vision of a man from Macedonia telling us to come and preach the gospel in this place. The first place we go and do it, we get beaten half to death well, the Lord has called us to preach, so I guess we're going to the next town to do that. And so they start on this journey down a road called the Ignatian Way, one of the major uh, Roman roads that ran between Rome and uh, and modern-day Turkey. And it cut the travel time uh, between those areas significantly versus uh, going... Uh, on the old routes overland, or even via boat, it was it it was a modern it was a it, it was the the interstate highway of its day, if you will, it was Highway 80, if you can imagine that. Okay, and so one of the major trading hubs, one of the major also religious centers of that day was Thessalonica. Thessalonica in Paul's day is a city of about 250,000 people. It was one of the major major cities of the area, and it was about 50 miles from Mount Olympus. You may remember from back in fifth grade when we took mythology uh, about the the gods of Mount Olympus, Zeus and Hera, and you know all of this mess, right? Um, and it was the last major city on the way to Mount Olympus, and so it was kind of a religious center. Uh, people, people who were pilgrims to Mount Olympus would stop in Thessalonica. It was also because it was a Roman city, it was a center for worship of the emperor. The Roman emperor was declared to be a god, a living embodiment of a god. And so, see here in America, we have separation of church and state. In Rome, they had union of church and state. And so if you were were a Roman citizen, every year, at least once a year, you had to stand before a statue of the emperor, And burn a pinch of incense and declare this confession Caesar is Lord now you may remember that formula in particular because what does John say it means to be a Christian it means to say that you are one of those who declare Jesus You see how Christianity is going to run into direct conflict with the religious, political, social ethos of its day. Head on. Deliberately. On purpose. Paul and Silas are about, when they show up in Thessalonica, they're about one week past being beat to death. Well, not literally to death, but significantly, and imprisoned. They come into this town, a center for worship of the emperor, a center for worship of the Greek pantheon, a center for trade in not just uh, material objects, but religious objects, proclaiming a message, Jesus is Lord. Uh, you you know you can read the fuller story in Acts chapter 17. I encourage you to read it for yourself later. but what you need to know about this church in Thessalonica is that after a few weeks of ministry, they have planted a church among the city's Jews. There was a large Jewish population there, uh, and there was a big synagogue there. So Paul and Silas did what they always did whenever there was a synagogue, they went and preached there about Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to people who were prepared to hear it. And so, some of the Jews in that synagogue, a number of the God-fearing Gentiles in that city that were part of that synagogue, they all believe in Jesus. And in fact, it gets the Gospel goes so wild that, that several of the prominent wealthy women of Thessalonica come to be followers of Jesus Christ. But, Luke mentions in Acts that that Paul does this on on three successive Sabbaths. We don't know how long after that he was forbidden to go to the synagogue anymore, but we know that at some point after that third Sabbath, uh, the Jews who did not believe in Jesus become jealous of Paul's ministry success. They stir up a riot. See if this sounds familiar. And Paul... And Silas and Timothy are all expelled from town. They all, in fact, have to leave in the night because of the riot that was started with reference to Christianity. The whole city is in an uproar. And the people who have become believers in this big city, it's a small group of them, you think everything just goes back to normal after that? The whole city is in an uproar. Over this small group of people, and you're one of those small group, you're part of that small group of people. How do you live life? I know Jesus is coming back. I hope it's soon because my entire life has been upended here in the last few weeks. Paul and Silas and Timothy had only ministered there a short time. And so they had to wonder what would happen to this brand new baby congregation of baby Christians and so what they did as soon as they were able to get safely away is Paul sent Silas back to Philippi he said go check on the church we started there make sure they're doing okay teach and preach them preach them some more do it quiet so that we don't have another riot try not to get beaten again and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, and said, go check on that congregation. And then when they get back, and they're all together again, Paul and Silas and Timothy send this way to tell them how to live, how to live life as Christians under persecution, under a society that is hostile to you, uh, knowing that Jesus is coming back, but not knowing when. What are you supposed to do? You just go out and live on top of a hillside somewhere, you know, just wait on a mountaintop, waiting, you know, maybe Jesus is coming today, you know, like Linus and the Great Pumpkin, right? Waiting on Jesus to come back. Is that what you do? Or do you just kind of go along to get along in the midst of that society and kind of keep your head down, and hope nobody notices you're a Christian? Is that what you do? What do you do? This letter and the one right after it, 2nd Thessalonians, are written to the same group of people. Small group in a big city surrounded by people who are instinctively hostile to them. To tell them how to live life in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. But you do not know when and where people aren't necessarily open to hearing what you have to say. Now, I wonder what possible application this might have. I think it has a lot. Amen? And so I want to dive into the book. So if you have your your Bible open there, 1 Thessalonians, um, that's page 1475 in my Bible. Might not help you a bit. But nonetheless, uh, if you would turn there and stand with me as I read what the Word of God says. We're going to look at three verses today as all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Word of God says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for this congregation and these people that your grace and your peace rests on them that they, like me, are in you, Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ because of their work of faith, because of their labor of love, because of their steadfast hope that they have put in Jesus, the Son of God. Father, help us to see in this book today what you have to say to us. Help us to understand it More than that, Father, help us to to obey it, to draw it into our hearts that it transforms our lives. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, imagine for a minute you're one of these brand new Thessalonian Christians. The guys who have led you to faith in Jesus have been forced to leave a lot of your former friends have distanced themselves from you. Maybe your family has disowned you uh, because you are a threat to the existing social and political and religious culture of your city. You know the basics of Christian doctrine. You're looking forward to Jesus' return. You're probably hoping that it's going to be today because you're wondering how to live in the meantime. Because things have gotten tough for you in a hurry. Are you feeling this right here? You feel me, bro? You get this? You feel how this is? In light of that, what do you think is most important for you to know at the beginning of a letter that is meant to address your concerns? Well, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul and Silas—he's here called Sylvanus, but it's the same guy. Okay, uh, Sylvanus is the longer name; Silas is the short form. It's like, it's like Joseph, which is who I am to my mother when I'm in trouble, right? Uh, and Joe—you know, same same guy, different forms, same name. I know some of you mothers. Uh, my mother told me that she picked out our names based on how they would sound when shouted. <laughs> okay, Joseph, Michael, You know, uh, that, uh, that was how it went, right? Uh, but same guy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this letter to the Thessalonians, and the first thing they do is remind them of their membership in God's family. Look at verse 1. Now, you need to understand about the Word of God, one of the things you need to understand about it is every single word, every verb tense, every preposition in the Word of God is inspired and is meant to teach you something. And here in this verse, the preposition its a tiny little word. The word in is really important. Okay? This is how these people are described. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying you are, every word of that sentence is important. You're not just a group, you're the church. You are those who are called out. That's what the ecclesia word means those who are called forth from a larger group of people. Those who have been called out of the world in response to the Gospel. Those who are located in a particular place here Thessalonica. But your identity is more than that. Not just the city where you're from, but the next few words here. Small but mighty. In. It informs them of their ultimate location, which is not Thessalonica. Where are they in? They are those who have been placed by God the Father, in Him. And because of the construction of the sentence, in also the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that might confuse you. This is a profound mystery, but this is the way the Scriptures talk about you and I as believers being united with God. Okay. Now Josh, this is fitting in great by the way, uh, Josh talked about how the, there is one God, and within the one being who is God, there are three persons. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they exist, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, in one another. I don't know how that works. okay? Um, but Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me. Later in the chapter, he says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and you are in me and in the Father. So in other words, when you believe in Jesus, it's not just that you are given a new identity, a new name, a Christ, you become a Christian. It's that in a certain certain spiritual way, the Holy Spirit brings you into the union of the persons of God himself. That does not blow the doors off your mind. You haven't understood it correctly. Because what is happening is exactly that. That you are brought into fellowship within the Godhead. It's not that you become God. It's that you are brought into their union you are placed in relationship unalterable relationship with the father and the son by the holy spirit you become unified with those uh, with those persons of the godhead in the being of god himself now beyond this status by the way you cannot go you have attained to the top of the pile, so to speak, right? You are united with God the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. So you don't just belong to God as His children. You have become, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. it's as if god you know you are in spiritual union with god the father and with his son jesus christ and if that is true and god is the father then what does that make us as believers together that makes us people who share the same bond of unity possessing the same relationship to god the father and god the son as one another and that makes us brothers and sisters and, and that brings up something else that Paul and Silas and Timothy are reminding these Thessalonian believers about. We read Jesus' full title there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't really hit us the way that it should because we're used to seeing it. But every word in that title is important. Again, every Roman citizen would have had to annually proclaim, as they burned a pinch of incense in front of an altar uh, to the emperor, Caesar is Lord. But Paul is saying here in the very first word remember who Jesus is. He's the Lord, not Caesar. The true ruler, the true Lord over all things, is not whoever sits on a throne in Rome, but Jesus Christ. He alone is supreme over all other gods and beliefs and even over the Roman Empire itself. Paul's driving a stake right here. If you have to choose between loyalty to Rome and loyalty to Jesus, which one should you pick? Jesus. And by the way, it's not theoretical to him, right? He's been beaten and persecuted across the empire at this point. He's saying, you follow me. And if it costs you everything, so be it. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Beyond that, He is Messiah. He is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew Mashiach. Messiah. The Anointed One. The One that God promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is Lord. Supreme Ruler over all things. And Messiah. Messiah. King of Israel who was awaited and promised. The one who delivers from sin and death. He gives all of these things. And that confession puts them at odds with both Rome and the Jewish synagogue. So we are people who have no home in this world, right? But nonetheless... This is our confession. And from that very first verse, then Paul is teaching truth. He's reminding them of the most important basic. Who you are, who you worship, and why. And then he pronounces God's blessing on them. Grace and peace. It's a blessing that every Christian receives because they have already gotten it. I don't know if you know this or not. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know why you do so. It's because you are a recipient of God's grace in Jesus. That God, though He did not need to save you, and you do not deserve saving. Trust me. I know. Not only in my own life can I say with great confidence I did not do anything to deserve salvation, I can also say with full confidence because I know you, that you didn't deserve it either. <laughs> okay? I'm serious. We are not good people. Right? Sometimes people ask, you know, well, how is it that, how is it that that God can send good people to hell? My snarky answer is this. Easy. There aren't any good people. Right, We all deserve to go to hell. But God, in His grace, sent Jesus Christ to die in our place for the sins that we did and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. You know what that's called? It's called grace. And when we received it by faith in Jesus, we are also recipients of something else. Peace with God. Peace. That we are no longer at war with God because of our sin and rebellion against Him. We are instead at peace. Permanently. Eternally. We need need not worry what will happen to us when we die. Why? Why? as we're going home to our Father with whom we are at peace because we are recipients of His grace. It's a lot of truth packed into one verse. And I bet you skipped over it when you read it. This is an amazing, amazing book. And there's a lot here for us. So... We are members of the same family. People who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are recipients of His grace and peace as a result. So, what's the conclusion that Paul then draws? To be grateful for your faithful brothers and sisters. And the first thing you see, in fact, is in verse 2, is gratitude. The apostles, as they write, are just profoundly thankful to God for these new believers. They can hardly believe what God has done through them with these people. Have you all ever ministered to somebody and you've seen them come to faith in Jesus and you just see them take off like a rocket in their new faith? You know what you are in that moment? Amazed. Shocked. Grateful that God would use you to do what He's done in this person's life. In fact, you kind of get high on it and you want to do it again. Right? When you start making disciples like Jesus did, you go, i got to do this some more. Because <laughs> it's the most addictive thing in the world. To be used of God. It be, to be a person who shares the Gospel with someone else and to disciple them and to see their life take off. And that's what's happened. And So they're just profoundly thankful. And they, they're like, can you believe those guys in Thessalonica? I mean, they're amazing. Isn't that cool? And so they thank God again. And then then they're they're thinking, you know, we need to thank God for those people at Thessalonica again. Because it's amazing what God has done. And so their joy just overflows in the prayer for these people. Verse 3, let me ask you a question. If you'd been suffering persecution for spreading the Gospel, what is the worst thing that could happen To the people that you had shared with that had made professions of faith. The worst thing you can imagine is that having shared the gospel with them, having seen them come to faith in Jesus, that they would just go, you know what? I'm done with that. I'm out. Tapping out right here. I'm done. Not a Christian anymore. Leave me alone. I need to go back to the synagogue. I want to get back to my job as an idol maker. I want to go do something else other than follow Jesus. But that's not what the Thessalonians did. And so Paul is excited. And he says, Look, we give thanks to God for you. And here are the specific things. Remembering before our God, our God, the one that we both believe in, and our Father, the one to whom we are both related as brothers and sisters. Your, and he mentions three things, your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. What are these things? Well, these things are the visible evidence that they authentically belong to Jesus. Jesus. Because, you know, the reality is a lot of people can say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. How do you know someone authentically is a believer in Jesus? Well, three things that are identified here. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so, what about work of their work of faith? Well, First, they have not just a profession, but it shows up. You look at verses, um, verse, verse 6. You became imitators of us. Verse 7, you became an example. All the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, the word sounded forth from you. They're evangelistic. They themselves report about you. And you're expectantly waiting for Jesus' return. These are signs that their faith is genuine. It's not just a profession with their mouth. It has results. It produces fruit. In addition to that, there's the the labor of love. Now, you might think as you're reading in English that work and labor are the same. They're not the same word in Greek that our English Bibles are translated from, the word work has to do with the task. Right? The word labor has to do with the amount of effort involved. Okay? So in other words, he's emphasizing the fact that you toil in love. Now this is going to sound rude, but let me just tell you this. What he's emphasizing here is the fact that it is hard to love the same group of people over a long period of time. Did you know that? Some of you who have been married go, yes, amen. <laughs> right? It is hard to love the same person over a long period of time. It takes effort. It takes commitment. It takes a recognition of the fact that God loves you, and so sometimes you have to bear with and put up with and forgive and repent and all these kinds of things to stay loving that person. And by the way, the same thing is true in church. The same thing. Guess what? If you are brand new to church here today, I am so excited you're here. This is a fantastic church, and we're glad that you're joining it. But I'll just give you a word of warning right up front. There are no perfect people here. So if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join this one. Okay, by the way, word of encouragement if you find a perfect church, don't join it because your presence there will surely screw it up. Okay, <laughs> but, um, but here's the reality, though. Is there labor involved in loving people? Yes. Why? Because even though we are children of the living God, we are hard to love sometimes. Believe it or not, I am self-aware enough to know that I, as your pastor, am hard to like sometimes. Okay? Hard to love me sometimes. If you want examples, you can ask Karen after the service. Okay? But it's hard there's labor involved. But those who believe in Jesus put the work in in loving their brothers and sisters. And there's also steadfastness of hope. Now, you need to understand something. Christian hope is not a word for, for um, your strongly desired but unknown outcome like i hope the Colts get a good draft pick that is my strongly desired but unknown outcome we need a quarterback in the worst way right if you're a bears fan you can you know you can say amen uh, cuz you know what that's about right you need a quarterback in the worst way and an o-line to go with it and um and And that's your strongly desired but unknown outcome. You don't know what those uh, fellows who are the general managers of those respective teams are going to do. But you want this. Christian hope is nothing like that. Christian hope is, I am looking forward to a certain outcome. I know that Jesus is coming me. It it, it it is the idea of um, a bride waiting on her groom. And in the ancient world, you didn't know as a woman, this may shock some of you uh, in a modern context, but you didn't know as a woman when your wedding day would be. The groom had proposed. He had offered to Marry you, you had accepted, but you did not know when your wedding day would be. You knew it would be soon. And so every day you would wait looking for the day when the groom would come and take you to his home to live with him. That is what Christian hope is based on. That is the idea. That we are a bride waiting on her groom to return for us and to take us where? Home. To live with Him forever. We have a certain outcome because we have a trustworthy groom. He's not going to abandon us. He says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. By the way, that's the same thing that every groom would tell his bride. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when it's ready, I'll come get you. That's Christian hope. And Christian hope is one that says, I don't know when He's coming, but I know He's coming. And we're looking forward to that day. And we're preparing ourselves, moreover, while He is away for the day that He comes. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's tomorrow. I don't know for sure, but I know that He's coming. And so we remain steadfast in our hope. Amen? That's the idea. That's the outcome. That's a a visible outcome of genuine faith in Jesus. That we are looking forward to Messiah's coming. So with all that said, uh, let me apply this text to us here in the year of our Lord 2023. Three specific things I want us all to take home and allow the Spirit of God to work on us with. Number one, As you look at your life, what do you see? Do you see a faith that works? That produces fruit? Sharing the gospel? And following the example that is laid out for you in the scriptures? Etc. Do you see, in addition to that, do you see the labor of love toward your brothers and sisters here at Chili Bible? Because again, loving the same person, loving the same people over a period of time is hard. Takes effort, but it's a mark of a Christian life. You labor in love for others here. Do you not only tolerate your brothers and sisters, but actively listen to their hurts? You serve them in meeting their needs in practical ways. Do you embrace them joyfully as members of your family? And then do you see the kind of Christian hope as you look at your life that reorders your priorities such that you are living expectantly waiting for Jesus coming? Now let me be very clear again. You don't do these things to gain salvation. This isn't a checklist that if if you're... If you're, you know, if you put your faith in Jesus and you share the gospel and you are are uh, kind and loving toward your brothers and sisters and you, you know, believe in Jesus coming back, uh, then you get salvation. No, no, these are results. Salvation is received by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But these are the kinds of things that ought to flow out of a, a belief in Jesus Christ. If He is who He says He is, this is who we should be. And we ought to be exhorted to display the kind of genuine life that results from genuine faith in Jesus. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think i got some room to grow in these things. So I hope that all of you would also join me in growing in them too. Question number two. How do you view the church and your place in it? Believe it or not, membership in the church of Jesus Christ through faith in the Lord Jesus is the highest possible attainment a human can achieve. To be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. To be among the blood-bought saints, sons of God. Higher than that, you cannot go. There is nothing beyond that. And you are thereby joined to your fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. And since that's true, how do you look at being part of the church? The local one. Surrounded by all of your imperfect brothers and sisters. How do you look at it? And how does what you really think about these things show up in your life? Because all of us have a stated theology and then a lived theology, right? Things we say we believe and things that we actually do with what we believe. And if there's a gap between how we should look at our membership in the church of Jesus Christ and how we should respond to our brothers and sisters as a result, and how we do, can I encourage us all to close up the gap? And last thing here, when you pray for your brothers and sisters, what do you pray for them? I've been a member of five different evangelical churches over the course of my life. And in every one of them, whenever you have a prayer meeting, uh, you know what prayer requests are about 90% of the time? Somebody's health. Huh? Sometimes that, sometimes gossip. I haven't run across that very much, but I have run across a lot of prayer for my surgery, prayer for my illness, prayer for my person in my life, my loved one who who is sick or has cancer or whatever. and it's not that praying for those things is wrong. In fact, God loves to hear from us about the the concerns and pains and difficulties and challenges of our life. Amen? But here we also see some other things that Paul prays for them that maybe we ought to pray for one another too. That we might pray in gratitude for things that have to do with the state of someone's soul and their spiritual life. Or for the the attainment of spiritual life to begin with. Maybe those things ought to be on the prayer list too. Hey, yeah, I've got this person. I've got this family member who does not know Jesus and I need an opportunity to share the Gospel with him. Uh, I've just led uh, my nephew to faith in Jesus Christ. I need help that I would be able to effectively disciple Him? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for Him that He would grow and that His faith would work and produce the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Jesus? You see what I'm saying? It's not wrong to pray for your health or for someone else's. In fact, please do. Because God answers those prayers. But He also answers these. And these also matter. Amen. All right. That's enough conviction for me this week. Um, So I'm going to pray for all of us and uh, and then we'll worship some more uh, through song this time. So let's pray. God, our heavenly father, um, your word teaches us truths that are so big, we can't even get our arms around them that blow our minds to contemplate them and yet are true about our relationship to you, about your love for us, about the transformation that Jesus brings, and about how we ought to live with one another. And Father, I pray that, um, that all of us would show our faith to be genuine by the way that it expresses itself down here with each other. Father, help us. We need help. Father, we, we, we struggle to talk to you in prayer. We struggle to love one another well. We struggle to, to stay focused on Jesus um, in the daily of, of life. We struggle. Father, we need your help by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is always present with us, but we, we pray that you might help us to yield to him even more.